We turn to God's Word this morning in Joshua 10. We will read the first 30 verses of the chapter. The first 30 verses encompass all that happens on that day that lasted two days. Verse 31 begins to speak of what happened on the second day, the day after. So we'll read the first 30 verses and then take verses 12 to 14 as our text. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty." Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to Bethhoron, and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Bethhoron, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou, moon, in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled, and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, 
Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities." And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near, and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight." Afterward, Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain until this very day. And that day... Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof he utterly destroyed, them and all the souls that were therein, he let none remain, and he did to the king of Makeda as he did unto the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him unto Libna, and fought against Libna, and the Lord delivered it also and the king thereof into the hand of Israel." And he smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein, he let none remain in it, but did unto the king thereof, as he did unto the king of Jericho. This is the word of God. We stop our reading at this point. And again, I call your attention to verses 12 through 14. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, Stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought. For Israel. Beloved saints in Christ, our text records not one, but two amazing events. If I asked you what was the great miracle recorded in the text, you'd say, well, the sun stood still about a whole day for 48 hours. The sun didn't set. If I ask you, well, what's the second great event recorded in the text? You might say, I take my clue from verse 14. 
When it says there was no day like that before it or after it, you don't read that the sun didn't set for 24 extra hours. You read that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. Two amazing events. The sun and moon stood still. That's number one. And number two, a man commanded. And God listened to the command of that man. By that, as we'll see this morning, Joshua is exalted as the leader of Israel and the people reminded to esteem him highly, to follow him and honor him. Let's set the background. Israel has not only come out of Egypt, gone through the wilderness, but now has crossed the Jordan River and entered the Promised Land. She crossed, of course, from Uh, east to west, and having come into the promised land, captured Jericho, that first great city, the story of which I don't have time to tell you. But having captured Jericho, she possessed control of a narrow strip of land along either side of the Jordan River, the southern Jordan Valley. Eight miles north of Jericho was a place called Gilgal. That's what she made her camp, her headquarters at the time. After capturing Jericho, she went westward and captured Ai and Bethel. Two smaller cities, themselves not overly significant, but yet the fact that they captured them meant that they possessed not just a little strip of land in the southern a lower Jordan Valley, but also a strip of land in the middle of the promised land. There was much land to the north and much land to the south that they did not yet possess, but the land, as it were, was cut in two by their capture of Ai and Bethel. It's after they captured Jericho, Ai, and Bethel, and the people of the land recognized that Jehovah, Israel's God, was fighting for them, that one group of people, the Gibeonites, said, although we are stronger than the men of Ai and the men of Bethel, we are not stronger than Jehovah, Israel's God. We must come up with a plan. And the plan they came up with was to make peace with Israel. How do you do that? Well, you put on old clothes, and you take moldy bread, and you go to the people of Israel, to Joshua and to the elders, and you say, we're just like you. You're a country, a group of people that has traveled for many years, so have we. Look, when we left our homeland, our clothes were brand new. The bread was fresh out of the oven, and you can see how long we've been traveling. Would you make peace with us? And Joshua and the men of Israel did so. They did not ask the Lord's will. They fell for the trick, the lie, and they made peace with the Gibeonites. The Lord has a purpose in everything that happens. And His purpose in the Gibeonites making peace with the Israelites was that the whole group of the strongest kings of the south would come against the Gibeonites Israel would join in the fight and fight against them, and in one day, the power of the kingdoms of the south would be destroyed. Not the kingdoms are gone completely, but their power is destroyed, and Israel sees that she can 
in the Lord's power capture the promised land. This wonderful event is recorded in two books. It's recorded, first of all, in the book of Jeshur, verse 13 says. The book of Jeshur is the book of the righteous, literally. It's a book that apparently Israel had. There's references in the time of David to that book also. A memorial of the wonderful things the Lord had done to His people whom He saw as righteous in Jesus Christ. But if it were written only in the book of Jeshur, I wouldn't be preaching on it this morning. It's written also in the inspired Word of God. And therefore, it contains instruction to you and to me, not just instruction about history past, not just interesting stories, but doctrine and instruction about our God. And instruction about how we are to go forward in our life, soldiers fighting a battle, taking lessons from Israel and learning the lessons Israel had to learn on this occasion. I call your attention to our text under the theme, The Day That Lasted Two Days. First of all, this is Jehovah's doing. Second, we'll notice Jehovah's means. The second miracle there, He hearkened to the voice of a man. And third, we'll notice Jehovah's purpose. The first wonder to which we call our attention is the fact that on that day, Evening and morning did not amount to 24 hours, but amounted to 48 hours. The sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people avenged themselves upon their enemies. The sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day, a whole extra day. When the kings of the south came against the Gibeonites to fight the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites quickly sent messengers to Joshua and to the Israelites camped over there in Gilgal and asked them for help. You heard the urgency of their request when we read it. Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. Now here was a fine opportunity for Joshua and the leaders of Israel to say, you know, Gibeonites, we made a mistake. We were rash in making our vow with you. We should never have done it. And we vowed that we wouldn't hurt you, but now somebody else is trying to hurt you, so fight your own battles. Don't come to us. Don't God's people sometimes think that way? I made a promise to you, but the promise isn't working out to my advantage. And if I can find a loophole, a way to escape holding myself to the promise, I'm going to do that. Notice that Joshua and the men of Israel do not do that. We don't even read that they consider it. The need is urgent, the promise they have made, and they go quickly. But going quickly means that Joshua and the men gather all their military equipment, travel through the night, 20 miles as the crow flies, it might be farther by foot, uphill, they exert themselves. And in the morning, as day breaks, they are in position for battle. This catches the enemy off guard. For the five kings of the Amorites didn't expect Joshua and his men to be there, and certainly not that quickly. They are therefore surprised. 
And although the enemy is stronger than the Gibeonites and the Israelites, and more in number than the Gibeonites and the Israelites, the battle does not go well with them. Not only the surprise factor, but also the fact, and this is a principle that's true in the life of the child of God all the time, it doesn't matter how many and how great the enemy is when Jehovah is on our side. We, that is he, have more strength. His cause is sure. And therefore it's Jehovah who fights for Israel and the Gibeonites. He does so by, in two ways. The enemy is discomfited, we read. That means they turn against each other in their confusion. They're not sure who's the enemy and who isn't. And they turn on even their own army men and men of the other allied armies so that they destroy themselves. And secondly, the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them. They were more which died from hailstones than they whom the children of Israel flew, uh, slew with the sword. And it's while this is happening that the five kings and their armies flee. It's not going well with us. We are out of here. And as they are fleeing, Joshua says to the men of Israel, pursue them. And while the men of Israel are pursuing, he says, son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. Some suggest it must have been getting late. It was mid-afternoon, late afternoon. The sun set in, in, in the land of Canaan by about 6 p.m. And Joshua's trying to hang on to as much daylight as he can. That does not do justice to the text. And especially the geography of Israel indicated in the text. Sun stand thou still upon Gibeon. And Gibeon was to the east. And thou moon in the valley of Agilon, and Agilon was to the west. In other words, it is not yet noon. The reason why Joshua says this is not that he needs to take advantage of any waning daylight hours, but very simply this, that he understands the magnitude of the task. He understands what is at stake. Here we have an opportunity to destroy the five southern kings, the kings of the Amorites, but to do it will take a long time, and therefore he commands the sun and the moon to stand still. And as I indicated, it's during that day that lasted two days that all the events recorded in the first 30 verses take place. That's the central wonder of our text, the central wonder which is the Lord's doing. The sun and the moon stood still. Now, every believer among us, from young to old, must acknowledge yes, this was Jehovah's doing. There's no doubt about it. Not only that, but it really happened. If you deny it really happened, then you're denying that it was Jehovah's doing. However, the unbeliever or the skeptic or the one who says, I'm a Christian, but who is a modern liberal Christian, one who's bought in any way to the modern approaches to understanding and explaining the Scripture says, well, it's the Lord's doing, but, but let's understand what really went on here. The sun and the moon did not stand still for an extra 24 hours. 
as a historical fact. Don't believe that. That's what many will tell you today. And they might use a number of reasons for saying that. One is this. The Bible, after all, is not a scientific manual. It doesn't tell us how uh, science works. And, And there's a problem here. The idea of the sun and the moon standing still? Every science a student knows that the, month, the sun and the moon always stand still. It's the earth that's revolving. This is really with respect to those who have a wrong understanding. A silly explanation. And what makes it silly is that even you and I speak of the sun rising and the sun setting. We speak from the viewpoint of where our own feet are planted. And that's what the Bible does too. Because the earth, planet earth, was that area in which God determined to carry out His work of redemption, creation, fall, redemption. All happens on planet earth. To men on planet earth comes the revelation of God in the Scriptures. You and I speak of life from the viewpoint of our experience and perspective. The sun rises and the sun sets. And that's what's going on here. The Bible isn't claiming that the sun is a mobile object and the earth is fixed. From the perspective of the human, that is what happened. So another person will come along and say, well, still, put that aside, this is poetry. And in poetry, the poet exaggerates. Don't really think that the sun stood still for 24 hours and the moon for the same amount of time. The poet exaggerates. So much happened in that day that it seemed as if the sun and the moon stood still. But against all those modern ways, and there might be more, to try to explain the text really in the end dismissing and explaining way a miracle, a wonder work of Jehovah God, you and I are going to say, no, this happened. And Jehovah is the one who did it. Now there's something at stake regarding your faith and my faith, especially regarding our knowledge of and trust in Jehovah God. There's something at stake If Jehovah did not do this, if this is not something that really happened, then there's a lot of things about Jehovah we can sweep under the rug too. But I'm going to bring out three matters that are at stake that are true, the Bible says they're true, and our understanding that Jehovah did this demonstrates the truth. And they all point to Jehovah. We're going to have a lesson about our God right now. Number one, He is a powerful God. His power is demonstrated in your life, in mine, in so many ways, but even more greatly by His control of the sun and moon and stars in their courses. You want to say this didn't happen? You're undermining, you're calling to question, Jehovah's control of the heavenly bodies. But if Jehovah doesn't control them, who does? And the only answer that modern scientists will give us is it's fate. It's chance. It's the way the laws of evolution work. You're dismissing that. 
and you are saying, no, there's a God. He's an all-powerful God. He controls the sun, the moon, and the stars in their courses. It's humbling for us to confess that. There are many days when a busy mother would love to command the sun and the moon to stand still so she could get more work done. At seed time and at harvest, the farmer might say, I wish I had that power to tell the sun and the moon to stand still so I can get more work done. But not a one of us has that power. If we tried, Jehovah would not listen to us. Jehovah and His power is demonstrated. Now that matters. Because the same Jehovah who then controlled the sun, moon, and stars in their courses is the one who does today. He is the one, therefore, who sent Jesus Christ to reveal Him as the all-powerful God. Jesus who had power over the wind and the waves so that He could still them, always with a view to the salvation and well-being of His people. Jehovah's control of the sun, moon, and stars isn't random. It isn't purposeless. It isn't just because He wants to. It's because He has a people whom He's saving. And all of this underscores how the God, who is all-powerful and controlling the sun, moon, and stars, will one day through Jesus Christ cause the sun to stop its shining, the moon to turn to blood, the stars to fall from heaven. Why? Because He's finished with this creation as He created it, and He's ready to usher in a a more glorious and perfect creation. Deny that Jehovah controls the sun, moon, and stars and does according to His will, and you and I have nothing left to look forward to. In a time when these creatures pass away, and the new heaven that is the heavenly Canaan is brought to pass. That first, his power in the second place. What's at stake is the covenant relationship in which Jehovah stands to Israel. He caused the sun and the moon to stand still not just because, but because he loved and cared for Israel. The people who he redeemed from bondage in Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, brought through the wilderness, time and time again in love for them, he chastised them, and they needed it, as do you and I again and again. And yet, time and time again, he preserved them. And finally, they're brought into the promised land where they can grow and multiply, be at peace and at rest. For their sake, he governs all things. And so a reminder to you, believer in Jesus Christ, that God's control of the weather and the universe and providence in every aspect has you and me and our salvation in mind. And in the third place, what's at stake is the display of His love and grace. There are again people who don't like a passage such as ours, if not our specific text, then the broader passage in which it stands, because it speaks of Jehovah God commanding or permitting some to kill others. 
And they portray the God of the Old Testament as a bloodthirsty God, a God who finds a sadistic pleasure in the suffering of others. What's with these Canaanites that they have to be chased out of their land? What have they done wrong? And so they turn against God. They find in Him a God whom they don't like. What I'm doing is saying, that's not the first thing to see in the Old Testament. It's there. I'm not denying that Jehovah is a just God. I did not call Him sadistic. But a just and righteous God who punishes sin. But what you see especially is a God who loves His people. And what's so amazing about His love for His people Israel is that by nature they are no different from the Canaanites. They too have worshipped idols in Egypt. They too in the wilderness tempted God time and time again. And yet Jehovah says, but I love them. I'm refining them. I'm purifying them. I'm going to bring them to heaven. And that's what you see going on. In fact, Jehovah's love and grace for His people explains every war in the Old Testament. Because wars in the Old Testament were, after all, a reminder of the justice of Jehovah and His hatred for sin. The Canaanites themselves are sinners. You say, I know the Canaanites were sinners, so why do the Israelites get Jehovah's favor? And the answer, do not forget, is that Jehovah would war against Israel also in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why He loves you and me. Not because there's nothing in us to war against, but because our Savior bore the wrath of God for sin on the tree of the cross. For Christ's sake, He loves His people. This day lasted two days because Jehovah is in control, saving Israel. The means Jehovah used to accomplish that was the words of Joshua. That's the second amazing event recorded in the text. The Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. Joshua had not, first of all, prayed that the sun or moon stead still, but Joshua had, at least in the words of the King James, commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. And the Lord heard and acted accordingly. Now, We have a question about what this part of the text means. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said, Son, stand thou still. He did speak to the Lord. That means one of two things. I'm not going to say which of the two it is definitively, but it can mean one of two things. On the one hand, he did first pray, perhaps, And then command the sun, moon, and stars. Because he understood he was just a man. And he could not accomplish what Jehovah only could do. That's one possibility. But the Hebrew preposition translated to can also be translated for. So the other alternative is that Joshua spake for the Lord. 
And then the point is that Joshua understood very well that he had the authority of Jehovah God. He was Jehovah's appointed representative, not only just to lead Israel into the promised land, but to do all things with a view to her salvation and enjoyment of the the promised blessings. And so in the authority that came from Jehovah, he commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. Regardless of whether it is him praying first or him simply speaking in the authority of Jehovah, he was a mere man. And this is an amazing thing, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. There's instruction here too. The first point of instruction was for Israel. Joshua is your leader. Now from your perspective and mine, looking back, it seems that that wasn't really a question. First Moses was her leader, then Joshua was her leader. But put yourself in Israel's shoes and understand the mentality of some when she was in the wilderness. And remember even how it goes in the church of Jesus Christ today. There are times when we say, what do we need leaders for? Aren't we capable of leading ourselves? Then again, a person might say, oh, I understand in general the need for government and authority. That's not my question. What do we need that leader for? When I be able to take care of myself better than that man? And there were plenty in Israel who had that sort of mentality. They didn't always like that Moses was their leader. And there were times they murmured against him. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram did. Miriam and Aaron did. And the Lord chastised or judged each one of them severely. So when Moses dies, it may well be that some in Israel say, All right, Moses had to lead us through the wilderness. Now we're about to cross the Jordan River. How hard can that be? We're about to go into the promised land. How how hard can that be? We don't need a leader anymore. And the Lord is saying to them through this event, You need a leader, and he is Joshua. I will listen to him command the sun and the moon to stand still, and no one else And Israel, if she took it to heart, must bow in humility and say, Yes, thank you, Lord, for godly, believing leaders. And that's a practical point of application for the church of Jesus Christ today. Oh, there's a calling to the Joshuas, the elders, the deacons, the husbands, the fathers of homes, the teachers the mothers too for that matter, be godly believers, but then to all who are under their authority, yes, I need them. The church especially needs her leaders. So Joshua is exalted as the man whom Israel must follow. She's about to conquer the whole land. She has to go fight more in the south. She'll then have to turn her attention to the north. She must follow Joshua's lead. The second point of instruction here is that this Joshua, 
whose Hebrew name means Jehovah Salvation, is a type of another Joshua, whose Greek name is Jesus. The same name, just a different language, and it means Jehovah Salvation. In other words, Joshua is a picture of our mediator, Jesus Christ. And when we hear that the Lord listens to Joshua's words, you and I are reminded that the Lord as quickly listens to Jesus Christ seated at God's right hand. Hears the prayers of Jesus Christ. Listens to Jesus Christ implore Jehovah how to lead and guide. Now, Jesus doesn't do it out of his own idea of how things ought to go. He knows the counsel and the will of God. And he desires that the counsel and will of God be carried out. And he comes to Jesus, to Jehovah God, at his right hand, and seeks that Jehovah will do Jehovah's will. And in turn, Jehovah says to Jesus, yes, carry it out, do as I will. And the point is, that it is Jesus Christ who sends a hailstorm and a tornado and a drought. It is your Lord and Savior who died for you on the tree of the cross, who another time sends a flood or some other too much or too little because Jesus Christ rules creation with a view to bringing the church to the heavenly Canaan. Isn't that marvelous? And when a hailstorm destroys my shingles and my siding or my corn or wheat crop, and when a flood means I have to redo my entire basement, I can murmur and complain, but that's not the, the new man of Jesus Christ in me murmuring and complaining. That's the old man in me murmuring and complaining. Or I can say, somehow, my Lord in His love for me is preparing me for glory. And life isn't, first of all, what happens to me. Life is first of all about praising Him. Thirdly, a lesson we get from here is the power of the Word. It was the words of a man that Jehovah hearkened to. It is the Word of Jehovah God that really has power. By His Word were all things created. By His Word are all things upheld. By His Word will your body and mind come out of the grave one day. By His Word our souls were brought to new life. The power of the Word. And that is again the Word of God. Even when it comes through a man, the Word of the Gospel preached. And from the viewpoint of every believer now, the Word as you bring it one to another to admonish, to encourage Always God's Word, a word in accordance with God's will, because God's Word accomplishes. It has power. It has an effect. And that's why the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. He would demonstrate these points to Israel then and see that it was recorded in two books, 
that you and I take the lessons to heart. But what was the Lord's purpose in all of this? Well, let's speak first of his purpose for Israel, and there it was a threefold purpose. In the first place, it was to give Israel a decisive and a complete victory. I don't want to leave the impression in your minds that in one day, all the Amorite nations are completely destroyed, and as it were, Israel starts moving their tents and pitching them throughout that southern kingdom and taking possession of it. It wasn't quite that quickly, but still, the power of the kingdoms of the south was broken. And by that I mean, their armies are diminished. They're almost completely destroyed. There are wives and children still alive inside the cities, the fenced cities back home. But there are very few men to come back home now and say, we can regroup. The five armies can't say plan B. There are no men to have a plan B. Therefore, Joshua and his men can go throughout the southern nations and their kingdoms and to their cities and conquer them and take them in time. Besides, even more, the power of the kingdoms of the south is broken inasmuch as the five kings are killed. So what has Jesus Christ done for you and for me on the cross of Calvary and in His resurrection? He hasn't just given us heaven yet. Heaven waits. But He destroyed the power of sin. The dominion and the bondage in which we were held. He destroyed Satan's ability to control us. And although Satan can for a while try to regroup, to take a different tack, to come with a new temptation, to get us back under His clutches, yet we can praise God that in Jesus Christ there is already a fundamental victory. We have been delivered from the power of sin. In the second place, the purpose of God for the Israelites was to judge the Canaanites for their wickedness. Now let's come back to that point that some made too much of and a wrong of. But let's not dismiss it entirely. Yes, in the Old Testament, you see Jehovah God destroying nations. But it wasn't a matter of they were nice people tending to their own lives. It is instead a matter of Jehovah visiting His justice on the wicked. They deserve death. They too were sinners in Adam. But not only were they sinners in Adam, they themselves, the Canaanites now, had developed in sin. Do you remember? They were descendants of Ham's son, Canaan. Canaan, who is held out in Scripture as a man of wickedness. And then his children grow even more in wickedness. And do you see, do you not see that great indication of wickedness in this chapter that makes them worthy of destruction under the righteous judgment of God? They are ready to fight the Gibeonites and then the Israelites. And any people who set themselves against the church of Jesus Christ deserve punishment. 
I do not mean I don't deserve punishment. I do not mean you don't deserve punishment. I mean, though, that the greatest manifestation of unbelief and ungodliness is hatred for the church. And that forces you and me to ask a question. I'm a member of a church of Jesus Christ. But do I love her? Or do I just tolerate her? Or in my heart, do I hate her? What is it? Because although the church of Jesus Christ will be saved, there are many members of the church of Jesus Christ of whom Jehovah will also say in the day of judgment, but you hated my work of grace in my people and you deserve the wrath that is to be poured out upon you. There is justice here. That justice is illustrated by the hanging of those five kings on a tree, a sign of curse and of the wrath of God. So that secondly, as far as a purpose for Israel, the third purpose for Israel is that Jehovah assure her That as she continues to fight in the south and in the north, not every battle is going to be won by Jehovah performing a miracle. He did at Jericho. He did at Ai. He did at Bethel. He did here against the, the uh, Amorites. Not every miracle, not every battle is going to be won by Jehovah doing a miracle, but every battle will be won by Israel as she relies upon the Lord. And at this point, she needed that reassurance. This was the largest show of force, these five kings of the Amorites, that had come against Israel since she left Egypt. Jericho was large, but not this large. Ai and Bethel were smaller. The largest show of force. And when you and I stand up against giants, against powers greater, mightier, and more evil than we, we do quickly get scared and say, I can't do can't fight them. Jehovah's saying to Israel, of course you can't. But I can. And regardless of the means I use, whether it be a miracle or whether it be me strengthening you, giving you a strength you didn't realize you could have, but it's a strength that comes from God nonetheless, I will fight for you. Go forward. Do not fear. And that really is the great and abiding lesson of this passage for you and for me this morning. We fight. You'd better be fighting. If in your life you're not fighting, the devil is winning. But we fight. We fight in ourselves. The old man and the new man fight against each other. And I'm talking now about the new man fighting the old. I'm talking now about the battle that goes on when you go to college and you hear unbelief spouted and you see immorality flaunted and there's a fight. You say, I must not be like that. I must not tolerate it. I must understand that's sin and wickedness. I'm talking about the fight that goes on when you go to work tomorrow or later this week 
and when there too you see that there's a spiritual battle I'm talking about the fight that you are involved in every time you turn on your computer and open up your smartphone that fight you must I must be fighting and what is it that makes us not fight so often well number one it can't be so bad everyone's doing it well what the Canaanites were doing was so bad number two it's bigger than I am yes but if you're on Jehovah's side he's bigger than it and so there's a calling to you and to me fight the fight and right now isn't the time to say how but it is to say how possible and the how possible is this that the captain of the army is that other Joshua Jesus Christ who not only died but arose again who therefore put you and me in his army put us on one side of the battle and he did so in his love and grace for us but having done so overcoming the power of Satan in your heart and mine he says to you and to me you can fight you must fight you can fight you will fight the Lord fights for Israel and the Lord lives in you and then in answer to the how also or the how possible the child of God says I'd better pray if it's the Lord's battle I'd better pray and having prayed I'd better trust and trusting I must go forward and in that way the Lord gives to his church one member at a time and then the church as a whole body the victory the lesson we learn from this great day that lasted two days in other words that lesson centers on two other moments in history that you and I may never forget the first other moment in history is a day when instead of the Sun lasting two days it went dark at high noon the Lord's wrath being poured out on Jesus Christ to earn salvation for us the other day a day when the Sun will not set because there is no Sun but there is a light and the light will never fail it will last to all eternity the heavenly Canaan into which you and I are being brought fight the battles of faith in the confidence that Christ empowers and enables with a view to the heavenly Canaan and the day when we will enjoy rest and peace and perfection and righteousness and perfect obedience forever and ever. Amen. Father, which art in heaven, apply thy word to our hearts. May it feed our souls and encourage us in a godly life. But above all, may it lead us to praise thee. 
A God who loves thy people shows power and demonstrates thy power to us in thy love and grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.